Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 184, recorded November 15th, 2014. Thank you, Colonel Sanders, for that lovely introduction. You're welcome, sir. I don't know why I felt like doing that, but I felt like going southern. Right, which is funny, because I'm the one who's in the south. You're way north. Well, I... (laughs) Right. At the moment, I am. I am in Juneau, Alaska. At the moment. All right. That's awesome. That's awesome. You're so far north that you became southern. (laughs) I'm coming around the back end. And uh, (laughs) no, not really. So. All right. So we got a couple uh, unlimited issues today, eh? They are unlimited. Exactly. They're unlimited trackers. Which is the title of the first comic. Interesting right. choice of title. Yes, so um, kind of instead of having a split uh, two issues or two stories per issue, they, these are both single issues, just larger format. Right. So one's based in the Taz universe, the Trekkers, and the next one is based in the Next Generation universe and entitled A Piece of the Reaction. Yes, what does that sound like? Hmm. That's somehow familiar to me. Right, right. Yes, and we'll find out that both of these stories uh, seem to play homage to stories from the past. Hmm. And not always Star Trek stories. (laughs) Good point. Good point, especially the Taz one. (laughs) Yes, uh, sometimes paying homage in good ways and bad ways. So where do you walk the line between paying homage and flat-out stealing? <laughs> I, I'd say the line to stealing was very well crossed. <laughs> very crossed in Trekkers. Oh, that's funny. Uh, of the two stories, I do like the first one better. I don't know how you feel because we haven't talked about that. But uh, I, I do like the first story better. But, oh, my God. It's blatant. The, uh, I, I, I did the like liberal the borrowing. One. You did like the second one better? Okay. I did. Yeah. But uh, I'll tell you why later. Okay. That sounds good. So, yeah, so we're doing 9 and 10 of Unlimited, if I haven't already mentioned that. And these are the last two issues of Star Trek Unlimited. No. Right. So we are almost done with uh, the Marvel era of Star Trek. Hmm. Well, that's too bad, but it's good to move on to the next grouping. These are right. uh, these are mostly quite good comics. So uh, I agree. Yeah, and you know, I, I love that Marvel did the you know Star Trek Unlimited, uh, uh, Star Trek early voyages, and then the Pike stuff, and the uh, well, the Pike stuff was the early voyages, excuse me. Yeah. But the uh, post motion picture era and the Star Fleet Academy. I mean, they. I like that they had some ongoings that weren't necessarily 100 percent based on you know the. TV shows that we saw week in and week out. So right, some of their own. So I'll, mi- I'll miss that a little bit once we get off Marvel because you know IDW has a few, 
miniseries here and there, but this is the only time a monthly ongoing has been based on something other than one of the mainstream franchises. Hmm. Yeah, and that's pretty cool. So uh, in the TV world, we had Deep Space Nine and Voyager and those kind of things breaking out from the uh, original mold, and it's nice to see the same kind of uh, expansion in the comic area. So anyways, will you want to just jump straight into number nine? Please. Okay, like we said, the comic is titled Trekkers. It is issue number nine, Star Trek Unlimited, published date May 1998. Writers are Dan Abnett and Ian Edginton. Penciler, Greg Scott. Inker, Joe Rubenstein. Colors, Kevin Tinsley. Letters, Phil Felix. Cheats, Chip Carter. Loses, Tim Toohey. Pit Boss, Bob Harass. The cover features Chekhov and Sulu's heads with a yellow Starfleet swoosh directly behind them. All around them are Klingon ships and a Starfleet shuttlecraft are also in the mix, along with asteroids and part of an orange-yellow planet. Text at the bottom of the page reads Trekkers, and that is Trekkers with two Ks, son. Chekhov and Sulu are currently in the middle of a friendly card game with three Klingons on Starbase 56. But things are taking a turn for the ugly. General Krag has been losing to Chekhov all night and verbally speaks of his suspicions the young Russian has been cheating. The fearsome Klingon is half-joking and half-not. Sulu tells Chekhov he does not like where things are headed and that we should walk away. Chekhov does not and ends up calling the general's bluff with all of his chips. The general does not have the credits to continue the battle, so he puts down his insignia off his sash, and he says it's his marker. The general's underlings question the wisdom of this move, but the general says he knows what he's doing. In the end, he does not, and loses again to Chekhov. The general is furious. Sulu says it's time to go. Sulu takes all the credits, but offers the general's badge back to him, saying no hard feelings. The great dishonor pushes the general over the edge. He draws his knife and lunges at Chekhov. The general's men grab him while reminding him where he is. It takes all their might to keep the general from Chekhov's throat. Sulu and Chekhov head for the door as Chekhov wishes the general and his men well. Sulu and Chekhov walk through the huge space station that is neutral territory and crammed with people that are from countless races and countless worlds. The wide open space they are walking through looks like a scene right out of Babylon 5 or Deep Space 9. We find out that the Klingons were insistent on playing Baklak and Chekhov was only too happy to oblige. They are on shore leave and Sulu says it's one heck of a shore leave so far. They depart the station in a new Type 4 shuttlecraft that Captain Kirk wants on the ship to take an open slot in the Enterprise's complement. Sulu says the model is a vast improvement over the flying box shuttles they currently have. They travel through space to rendezvous with the Enterprise, while Sulu marvels at the new ship's capabilities. The ship's manual points out that it has eight multitasking probes on board. Chekhov joins Sulu in the co-pilot seat. 
Sulu begins to bring up a topic he has wanted to discuss with Chekhov for some time, but before he can, he notices Chekhov is preoccupied with the golden badge General Krag lost in the game. They wonder what it is and why the general was so angry when Chekhov tried to give it back to him. Sulu notices the sensor display is picking up something trailing them. A non-distinct form, but it is definitely there. They soon find out it is a Klingon bird of prey when it decloaks above them. Chekhov wants evasive maneuvers, but Sulu wants to hear the hail coming across to them particularly since the Klingons can outrun and outgun their shuttle, no matter how advanced it may be. It's Captain Gach who orders them to stand down and prepare to be boarded. They consider their options. Sulu says he has an idea and executes a gut-wrenching maneuver in the agile smaller ship. They begin to build distance between the Klingon ship, but then start to lose it as soon as the larger ship turns to chase them. Chekhov compliments Sulu's fine piloting skills, but reminds him of what Sulu just told him a few minutes ago. They are faster than us. Sulu says they just need 30 seconds, and then they would be safe. They enter a debris field circling a planet, and after some fancy flying, they find a large asteroid to hide behind and shut down power. Sulu says the Klingon sensors won't be able to find them in this field with their power shut down. Indeed, Captain Gak is informed that they lost them. They go in to find the Federation shuttle, but eventually have to exit due to the pummeling their shields are taking. They cloak the ship and wait. Chekhov tries to figure out what the Klingons want. Sulu says they want Chekhov for fleecing them for every credit they had. Chekhov has the idea to send out one of the semi-autonomous message and research probes the shuttle has on board. Sulu assumes Chekhov wants to send it in one direction to be picked up by the Klingon sensors. When the Klingons chase it, they can make a run in the opposite direction. The probe leaves the asteroid field. At first, the Klingons decloak and make ready to pursue, but they realize the target is too small to be the shuttle. Chekhov and Sulu see no sign of the Klingon ship and leave the asteroid field at high speed. But Sulu is about to ask Chekhov the question he started to ask before, but is interrupted by the Klingons firing on them. They come face to face with a different bird of prey. They ask why it is open season on them today. If two Klingon ships of this class want them, they would have had them by now, so they must not be working together. The second ship's captain hails them. This one's name is Captain Poog, but he has the same tired old demands as Gak did. Sulu sees no place to hide. If they don't surrender, Poog will open up on them. Chekhov says he thinks he sees a way out. Sulu is not thrilled with the the he thinks part of Pavel's sentence. Chekhov takes to the control pad again. Chekhov takes control of the helm from Sulu and flies the shuttle straight at the bird of prey at high speed. The Klingons are surprised, then it turns to fear as they think the shuttle will crash into their bridge. At first they can't find the small Federation shuttle, but quickly realize Chekhov has parked them just above the very top of the Klingon ship, where their weapons cannot get them. Sulu hands it to Chekhov. They can't even come after them in spacesuits because their hands' weapons can't get through the shuttle shields. And anyway, 
the shuttle's phasers can pick off anything that comes near them. With the temporary safety afforded them, Sulu finally asks Pavel if he would be godfather to his baby daughter, Demora. Sulu hands Pavel a picture of her. Chekhov is shocked. He didn't even know Sulu had a daughter. Of course he says yes. Finally, the bird of prey goes to warp, and the shuttle detaches. Eventually, a Klingon D-7 battlecruiser decloaks in front of them. Not standing a chance against this behemoth, Sulu proactively opens a channel. It is General Krag. He says he has nothing to say to Chekhov. They find out that the golden badge the general lost to Chekhov is a symbol of his house. Whoever holds it owns him, his ships, his lands, his family. Chekhov and Sulu do not know what to say. They realize the two captains wanted to get their hands on the symbol of Krag's house. It would be a big step up for mere captains. Suddenly the two birds of prey arrive and take a shot at the shuttle. They hit it and leave the shuttle without nacelles and limited power. At least life support still works, and the two Starfleet officers argue about whose fault this situation is anyway. Sulu says it's 100% Chekhov's fault. The upside is, they won't be alive when Kirk finds out what happened to his brand new shuttle. Chekhov has one last great idea, and orders General Kag to do whatever he has to do to protect their shuttle. He does so and takes out both captains' birds of prey. As Chekhov is celebrating his latest success, Captain Gak from his burning bridge gives the final order which is to destroy the shuttle utterly. Chekhov and Sulu materialize on the general's large and in-charge cruiser. Chekhov tries to give the symbol of his house back, but General makes it clear that would be the gravest of insults. Chekhov makes him a deal and says he would only consider trading the symbol of the general's house back to the general for one thing. Scene cuts to the Enterprise where Captain and crew are awaiting rendezvous with Sulu and Chekhov in the new shuttle. Instead, a Klingon cruiser decloaks next to them with their weapons powered down. Sulu and Chekhov appear on Kirk's view screen. They have a story to tell Kirk which the captain is eager to hear. For now, they will make it clear that though they lost the captain's new shuttle, they did procure a Klingon D-7 cruiser. The Klingon crew was traveling home in shuttles. The captain says when they arrive back on the Enterprise, they are going to go to the captain's cabin, where he expects to hear a whopper of a story. The end. Ba-dum-bum. Yes, a light little episode. So did you ever figure out why it's called Trekkers? The only thing I can figure is that Sulu and Chekhov are traveling great distances, and that's the only explanation I can figure. Nice. What do you think? That works for me. I I was a little perplexed, aside from, you know, the obvious Trekkers, Trekkies comments. Oh, right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You know, a nice light little adventure. You get to see Chekhov and Sulu in action as the main characters. I kind of like that. Yes, and I love the bringing up Demora. That was exactly awesome. that was good. You know, at first it seemed like you know, knowing George Takei, it's not some gay thing, <laughs> is it? <laughs> Just a joke. No. Uh, but no, it's uh, to be uh, 
to be the godfather of his daughter. That's so cool. And she's so cute, the picture. Yeah. That they show. Yeah. Yeah, I've always, uh, I mean, and I liked even that they, you know, they mentioned don't tell, don't tell the captain, because obviously Kirk seems surprised in Star Trek Generations that yep. Sulu has a daughter, so. Exactly. Yeah, they do, I didn't cover it in the synopsis, but there's a whole thing where Sulu explains why nobody knows about him having a family. Right. Yeah, that Starfleet frowns on it, unofficially frowns on it. Well, exactly. And the fact that, you know, he's semi-ambitious. I mean, he doesn't want to be treated like anybody else, and he wants to rise up through the ranks, and he thinks that uh, having a, a, a wife and family would um, have people look at him differently or maybe give him less dangerous missions. And he doesn't want that. Which is cool and everything, but it's kind of selfish, too. It's like... I mean... <laughs> selfish on... on Sulu's against part. Against Sulu. I mean, he's got right. a, a wife... Well, okay, so you can look at this several different ways. The way I look at it is, he's got a wife and family who he almost never sees. I mean, how often do they get back to Earth? Right. Um, and and maybe that's cool. Maybe that's cool. You got a little little understanding going. That's fine. But um, And you're in a very high-danger situation. I mean, that's... <laughs> I can't think of a job more dangerous, except maybe a coal miner, uh, than being on a starship. <laughs> Um, at least he doesn't wear a red shirt, but well, still. Well, he's wearing a gold shirt, so he's good. exactly a little a little safer. So <laughs> I don't know. I, it, that's fine. I, I just I just always thought that was a little bit odd, but right. No, I agree. I, I, and I, uh, I I I do see the selfish thing. I, I thought you meant it was selfish. Him, he was being selfish to not share the news of the kid with with his friends on the Enterprise, oh, no, no. but. No, okay. no, I don't. But yeah, that. no. What what kind of father is he going to be? Yeah, yeah, I totally see that. Yeah. You know, and it's not it's not even like you know now people like you said coal miners and other occupations that you know take you away from your family or are dangerous. Uh, but right, but you're yeah. doing that because you have you know, to. Usually, you're doing that because you're trying to provide a living for your family, right? right. So, I mean, right. you're in Alaska right now working. So that you can provide a life for your family, right? But you don't have that reasoning in the future. You, there's no money, so he's doing this solely for his own benefit or his own ambitions. Not not that he's you know, I'm doing this sacrifice right. for my family, right? So yeah, but I mean, I guess you could say he's doing the sacrifice for the betterment of all mankind. Yes, you. Could. Who else can sit in that chair and pilot it around? Uh, Tom Paris. Uh... He's not alive yet. <laughs> okay, fine. I'm just saying, other people can pilot the ship, but... Right. Or command uh, the Excelsior, so... Or, yeah, Excelsior, right. Okay. Yep. Anyway, so, uh, but it's a nice, it's a nice, light little story, you know? You get to see... I, I think the scenes in the inside of the Starbase look pretty cool. You think so? Yeah, I do. Although it is really crowded with people. Uh, right. But then again, the promenade used to be a hustling, bustling place too, uh, on Deep Space Nine. But okay. yeah, that was kind of cool. It looks like a little too much. I mean, especially when they have like a guy dressed up like George Washington or something, or oh, maybe that they? Southern guy that was there at the beginning of the uh, podcast. perhaps he's, he's like That's an Southern alien, General Sanders there. <laughs> 
Yeah, they did have some weird people. I mean, they they had this this one huge Alibaba looking guy with the arms folded, like like standing up there like he was on in on guard or something. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, up, just, up and on the right, it's like, what's that about? Yeah, kind of like he's guarding that room that they just came out of. Right. Yes, he just needs a centa- a big giant sword. Scimitar, yes. Um, and then others that look like, uh, you know, they're from some, who knows, some some old periods of Earth, or something. I I do like like on the uh, video screen there where the uh, you know the Frankenstein looking guy and the Andorians look looks like they're watching, and it looks like they're watching some sort of like Tauntaun races or something. It says photo finish or something like that. Oh right. <laughs> Yeah, right. Or dinosaurs or something. What are those yeah. things? Or lizards? I don't know, but that is kind of weird. Anyways, so what was that card game they were playing? Oh, I, it sounded like it was a Klingon card game. Backlack? Uh, Backlack? B-A-Q-L-A-Q? Yeah, I've never heard of that. Is that has I never that heard, ever been referenced before? I don't remember it being referenced, but it's possible. It could have been. I mean, uh, I I think the faces of the cards look a little di- looks different from uh you know from a poker deck. Right, but they so, are Arabic or you know just normal numbers one two three four five. So it's right. not like it's a Klingon yeah. numbering system. Exactly. So yeah. So okay. So maybe it isn't Klingon, but it kind of sounds like it, doesn't it? Baklak. But whatever, it's not poker, or maybe it's some some future spin on poker. That's what they were insinuating, anyway. Right, I think. They were. So I really wasn't expecting the ending, though. I was expecting the ending to go a little different. Would you like to hear what I expected? I would love to hear how you expected it. To of course you would. Thank you. So I was expecting that that probe they sent, they 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 mentioned it was a communications and uh, sensor probe or something like that. Science probe, whatever. So I figured what they did is they said they sent it to be a decoy, but maybe they cleverly also programmed it to uh, send a message to uh, the Enterprise. That would have made sense. And then the Enterprise would swoop in there and save them at the last minute? That's what I was expecting. That's what I was expecting. But no! It ended quite differently. The boys got out of their jam all on their own. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> no, it was fine. Well, you didn't like it. I, I don't know. No, I, didn't I didn't really like care for it. I did not like how no Klingon general would give up his whole house, his whole, you know, his whole, his whole family <laughs> yeah. on a card game. I... It's that's dishonorable. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I don't know about dishonorable, but it's stupid. I mean, I mean, definitely the number of chips that Chekhov went all in on it came nowhere near the value of that uh, that sigil or you know whatever the right word for that badge was. Right. I mean, was he just supposed to be that arrogant that he's like, "Whoa, ho, ho, I can't lose." Exactly. What a hand I've got. Yes. Right, so I mean that that's just I agree, I agree with that. I didn't like that part, and I didn't like that you know, you know he he tried to give it back several times. Here, take it back. No, I yeah. can't. 
And then finally he does just an, a trade, which is right. I'll trade your your battle cruiser for this this chip. Which, by the way, Chekhov already owns. Hello. Right. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'll I'll give you this that I already own. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I already own you and your whole family and everybody on that ship, but I'll let you have this and your freedom. For your ship. Exactly. Yeah, that's funny. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, no, I didn't, whatever. I didn't care for that part. And then I, I thought that, you know, and this probably won't be our only uh, allusion to it, but I was thinking, you know, and, and this might be a stretch, but bear with me. So in Empire Strikes Back, Han Solo... Empire Strikes Back? Why'd you bring that Empire, up? Well, because in, in Empire Strikes Back, <laughs> it's mentioned that Han Solo... <laughs> Won the Millennium Falcon from Lando through a game of cards. Uh-huh. Sabak, I think, is what they, they played. So, in it, a made-up card game, Lando loses his favorite possession, which is the uh, Millennium Falcon. Millennium. Yep. And then here, Chekhov's winning giant battle cruiser off of that game of chance. Right. Is it a stretch, you think? That's a little bit of a stretch because I didn't I didn't see that angle, but you mention it and I and I do see that. It's the other three <laughs> things going on in this story that are blatant ripoffs from uh, Empire Strikes Back that I find a little bit more obvious. But well, do tell those then. Do tell. Well, um, when they were trying to get away, when it was the little shuttle trying to get away from the bigger ship. And they just happen to have an asteroid field uh, or an asteroid belt to go to. And it's like, oh, hmm, that seems familiar. But that's a trope that's been used many times. Of course, immediately Empire Strikes Back comes to mind. Um, but then when they are in it and they're flying around all of the asteroids, okay, yeah, so he's Han Solo now. Okay, fine. And then they, they hide behind an asteroid uh, and shut off the engines. It's like, okay, close. They didn't go into a hole, but in the asteroid, but okay, close enough. And then, when the Klingon, Bird of Prey, enters the bigger ship, uh, after being in there a little while, the underling says to the captain, oh, we can't stay here, we're taking too much damage. And uh, so that was right from The Empire Strikes Back. So, oh, hmm, hmm, there's a pattern here. And then, uh, and then later, when they do the where Chekhov does the uh, suicide run, making like he's going to hit the Bird of Prey's bridge. It's like, oh my god, that's, again, Empire Strikes Back. And then when he ends up sitting on top of the uh, the Klingon ship, it's like, oh my god, you know, they're not even trying. They just, they just, co- they just got the printing press, the copier going, the Xerox <laughs> is going. And then, uh, uh, anyway... What do you think? Uh, I'm agreeing with you 100%. Uh, that those were my thoughts as well. Just right. Wow. Yeah. I mean, now, I, yeah. the asteroid thing, like you said, okay, I could buy that. You know, they're just doing an asteroid belt, even though you know the asteroid belt in the in our solar system is nothing like the Empire Strikes Back asteroid belt in this one. I mean, the asteroids are not that close together, so you can't. I mean, you can fly through it easily, but right, uh, right. but it looks more dramatic when you're skirting through, you know, close calls and things like that. So, sure. okay, 
I'll buy that one. Not necessarily a blatant, a blatant ripoff, but yeah, the uh, the attaching to the ship just there's nothing else you you could have said that was no. Now I will say they did some clever things with that. I, at least I think it was clever. It's different, but I mean the Klingons knew where they were, so that's there. But then they did the logic. They just thought about it a little bit and said, well, okay, you know the ship's got shields, the shuttle. So they can't get through it if they try to come out after him. Okay, that makes sense. Um, but then they could have went even further. Uh, if the shuttle has phasers and they're like right behind where the bridge is, I mean, if they really wanted to be bad guys, they could have fired the phasers right into the uh, bridge and, you know, killed the captain easily. Uh, right. I mean, because they're within the bird of prey shields. So there's nothing that would protect stop them from doing it. So... True. But they didn't do that because they're Federation good guys. They're good guys. Exactly. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so, a little a little borrowed from uh, a good show, though. A very good movie. That's my favorite. You're gonna, if you're going to copy from somebody, you might as well copy from the yeah. best. Especially, yeah, exactly. Copy from the best Star Wars movie ever. I will agree. Exactly. Hey, there you go. And I, I, I think most people think that. Well, except maybe the kids that were raised on the prequels. Right. Right. Yeah, because my my kids, they had no time for the original three. Really? But they they liked the prequels uh, pretty good. Uh, my kids still haven't watched the prequels. They uh, really they really like they really like the original series and they like the. The Clone Wars cartoon, but they right. never really watched the the prequels. We watched oh, Phantom Menace, and then they were like, "Me." <laughs> but when we watched the original ones, they were like, "Oh, let's watch the next one. Let's watch the next one." Right. Oh, cool. So, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. There you go. But I can't get them to watch Star Trek, so. <laughs> well, they won't. Wa- they won't watch Star Trek. No, they sat and watched uh, Into Darkness, but that was about it. That's as, oh. that's as much Star Trek as they've ever watched. And You're I think Jonathan me. only watched it because he just played the game, and he was like, "Oh, I love that game. Let me watch the movie." And then he was just—that's he... amazing. After, I mean, considering how often you probably watch Star Trek stuff, the kids didn't have really not seen much. Okay. Yeah, they, they come by, see that I'm watching it, and keep moving, keep moving, <laughs> move on down. <laughs> yeah, when the kids were really young, they were semi into uh, Next Gen, and they partic- in particular liked uh, Commander Data. Sure, but uh, but that was kind of short, semi short lived. That's funny. Yeah, so it's funny that they won't just latch on to what we love and just be exact clones of us. Exactly. Come on, especially when they become teenagers. Good lot. Good God. All right. So uh, back to this issue. One of my last comments is the uh, the shuttlecraft. Mm-hmm. What would made that one so advanced? I mean, it didn't look any more advanced than other ones. Well, it was more advanced than the original Taj shuttlecraft. I mean, it looked a lot better. And and uh, I, I think the design is the kind of stuff they used in the Taz movies, I'm pretty sure. Because um, it, it does look familiar. But then when you combat, compare that, the look of it, to the original Taz shuttlecraft, which I always loved the original Taz shuttlecraft. I love those, but come on. It, Sulu's description of it as being a box is about right. Right. You know, it's boxy. You know, it's pretty crappy inside because they really didn't have a lot of money, <laughs> apparently, in the original show. 
Okay, so I thought the uh, the looks on the flustered Captain Gak's face um, were really, really extreme. I mean, they seem to be purposely comical. Cartoony, yeah. Cartoony. Uh, almost like, uh, what, manga kind of uh, extreme. Right. Agreed. So, I, I, you know... Uh, you know, that on the one hand, that was kind of telling me that this is trying to be, you know, kind of in good fun kind of uh, comic. But it also kind of like, it almost like made it seem like it was trying to be so comic that it almost like I took the story less seriously. Um, it wasn't a very serious story. No, it wasn't a serious story. But But if you take it too lightly, then there's also no dread. There's no threat right. to uh, two of your favorite characters. So you kind of right. lose that dimension if it's too light and airy and fun. But I just thought I'd mention right. that. No, I agree with you. I had the same comment. Yeah. I thought the ships looked really good for the most part. With the exception I, of the shuttle, I wasn't the biggest fan. But No, uh, but in some scenes, some drawings of the shuttle were better than others. But the Birds of Prey look great. I, I, I always liked the Bird of Prey design. Cool looking, right? Yeah. And then, really, my last comment um, was when the bird of prey or the battle cruiser, whatever it is, it's it's not a bird of prey. It's a it's a battle, battle cruiser, cruiser that he, yeah. he takes at the end. Yeah, decent. Uh, when it shows up, it kind of reminded me of Star Trek Five, where you know Kirk sees this bird of prey coming, and he thinks that you know he's he's in for another fight, and then it comes out that Spock's in control of the bird of prey. Oh, right, yeah. So the, this scene kind of reminded me of that. Right. Yep. Similar. Well, I have nothing else to say about this one. All right. So let's jump to the next one, which is my personal favorite of the two. <laughs> it is in Thai. Oh, why are you laughing? Um, do you like it that much more, though? Uh, no, I wouldn't say leaps and bounds better than the other one. But, but... you do... I mean, yeah, I understand you, you, you like this one better. That's cool, but... Okay, good. <laughs> Are you going to uh, really point out its its shortcomings here in a minute? <laughs> no, no. Every <laughs> every comic has its pluses and minuses. This is not uh, this is not a bad comic at all. Hmm. Okay. Go. All right. It is entitled. Go, Sulu. Okay. It is entitled a piece of reaction. And the re is in a different font, almost as if it wasn't originally there. So the writers is Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangus, penciler Ron Randall, inker Art Nichols, letterer Phil Felix, colorist Kevin Tinsley, Chip Carter is Starfleet, Tim Tui editor, Bob Harris editor-in-chief, and it is in it is dedicated to the loving memory of Harold D. Martin, 1924 to 1997. I'm assuming that's some sort of relation to Michael A. Martin, but I don't know for sure. This is Star Trek Unlimited number 10, came out July of 1998. On the cover, it has the exclamation that it is our most offbeat tale yet, or actually our most offbeat tale ever. And it also has a warning on the cover that this is not a holodeck gone wild story. And the reason why it says that is because on the cover, we see Data, Troy, and Dr. Crusher 
clad in 1930s gangster attire. And then behind the tree, you know, we see Riker in his first contact uniform being shot down by several phaser blasts. And uh, these these phasers are being held by five gold-shirted Taz crew members. So what is going on here? So the normal previously in Star Trek Unlimited recap page, instead of making any references to the, the prior comics, is instead a recap of the classic Season 2 episode of the original series entitled A Piece of the Action. And that is the episode where Kirk and company find a planet that has modeled themselves after a 1992 book entitled Chicago Gangs of 1920 or something like that. So this story takes place sometime after the Enterprise E's encounter with the X-Men in the comic crossover Second Contact. The crew of the Enterprise has been tasked with revisiting the planet Sigma Iota 3. This planet has been untouched since Kirk's visit nearly 100 years ago. They are again investigating if the planet is ready to join the Federation and to see what, if any, um, influence Kirk's presence last century had on the culture. Once there, they notice a string of satellites that block communication and scans of the planet. They are contacted via radio by the leader of the planet who identifies himself as Admiral Sonny. He asks Picard to beam down, though he seems a little upset that a captain is the highest-ranked officer coming to visit. Not wanting to interfere with the planet's culture again, Picard and his away team of Data, Troy, Crusher, and himself dress in Dixon Hill outfits so that they will not be that far off of the 1920 style that Kirk and them experienced. When they beam down, they are shocked to see that the planet has gone from 1920 Chicago to 23rd century Starship. Everyone is clad in gold tunics. They eventually meet with Admiral Sonny, who is in an office with several hanging pictures of Kirk on the wall. It seems that Kirk has left quite an impression on this planet. Sonny tells Picard that when Kirk left, McCoy accidentally left a communicator... And with the translator, the people of Sigma Iota 3 were able to recreate their entire way of life, using what they could find out through Federation radio waves. Sonny tells the captain that he actually was the little boy that Kirk promised a piece of the action to all those years ago. Now, with Picard's ship, he will finally take what Kirk had promised him all those years ago. And with that, the crew is sent to a brig. Once they are in the brig, the crew try to figure out a way out. They still have their communicators, but cannot reach the ship due to the satellites. They instead devise a plan to distract the guards who are playing a card game right in front of the cell. So they provide advice on the card game, and the guards actually deactivate the force field long enough for them to be attacked. And the crew escapes to the transporter room. These old-style transporters are quickly modified by data, and the crew is able to beam back to the Enterprise one at a time. Picard is the last to go, and he rigs a phaser to explode to erase the enhancements that they did. But 
he is caught by Sonny, who says that was always the plan. Back on the Enterprise, the crew become concerned that Picard did not beam back up. And are unaware, as Sonny is beaming many of his men all across the ship. Soon, these gold-tuniced men are able to hold the Enterprise crew hostage in engineering, weapons, and on the bridge. Back on the planet, Picard is shown footage of the hijacking of the Enterprise. And Sonny tells him that he will start killing the bridge crew members one by one unless Picard gives over command to him. To prove his point... He starts to kill Troy by sending her out into space. Data interjects with a lot of wisecracks, and then Sonny decides to kill him instead, not knowing that he's an android. Once beamed into space, Picard is given eight hours to think it over. On the Enterprise, Riker and the bridge crew are sent to the brig. They use their comm badges to contact Data, who's walking on the hull of the ship barefooted. They start to devise a plan. Later, Sonny arrives to inspect the Enterprise. He is frail and starts to act like the 120-year-old man that he is. He starts to threaten Troy again unless Riker relinquishes command when the computer suddenly announces that the self-destruct has been initiated. He tells Riker that he will kill Troy right then with a phaser rifle unless he stops it. Riker eventually agrees much to everyone else's dismay. He takes them to the bridge via a shortcut through the holodeck. Once on the bridge, Riker stops the countdown and gives control of the ship to Sonny. Then, one of Sonny's young lieutenants demands control from the old man. Suddenly, Kirk appears and tells Sonny that he is an old man and he needs to step aside for the young. To Sonny, the bridge starts to turn into the street where he had last seen Kirk all those years ago. He agrees and relinquishes command to the young man and then dies. Riker and this young lieutenant then blast all the rest of Sonny's men who are on the bridge with phasers. Once done, Data appears and orders the computer to gas the entire ship except for the holodeck and the brig. Once done, Riker orders the real stop to the self-destruct. Later, Picard and company leave the planet after they've scrubbed all references to the 24th century tech, and they leave the planet with the recommendation that they are not quite ready to join the Federation. The end. You ain't kidding. Not, not ready to join uh, the Federation. I mean, geez. These people are whacked. But I didn't man. quite know how to... But they make a comment at the end in regards to that, that, that I wanted to talk to you about. Okay. So Data's the one that says maybe they're not ready. And Picard says, nor are we, Mr. Data. Nor oh, are we. What, yeah. What does that mean? Well, that was confusing at first to me, too. But I, I think I thought what he meant was, we're not ready for them to be in the Federation. Okay. <laughs> Alright, well, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I was I, thinking he, he somehow saying that that. The crew that is isn't. The crew isn't. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I'm like, what are you talking about, Picard? Yeah, that's, that's the first way I took it. But then it was like, okay, well, he, I was just looking for something that would explain the comment, and that's what I found. That's what I yeah. came up with. All right, that's good. Thank that you. Was, that was odd. <laughs> yeah, that threw me but off yes, when he they, said that. Yes, they are totally crazy, they, these guys. Yeah, but man, oh, not only imitative, but pretty good with technology. 
I mean, what, what uh, communicator? Is that what McCoy left behind? Yeah, that's what McCoy left behind. So from the example of a communicator and from an example of one of the crime bosses being beamed to the Enterprise, they were able to recreate all that. Oh, I'm sorry, but they also monitored radio waves from the Federation? Right. Anyway, yes, so from those three things, they're able to copy things so well. That's amazing. Absolutely right. amazing. And they've, they've even got portraits of Kirk <laughs> in, uh, in the Admiral's office. I thought that was a little over the top, but... Yeah, the, the portraits were really funny. Yeah. Like, geez, these people are like... Get a life. Right. So in the original episode, there was different gangs, um, and, and it was kind of like a street war to control Chicago kind of thing. Right. Um, and here, the, you don't actually see it, but you, they make reference to that still kind of goes, goes on. But instead of different crime bosses, they're red shirts versus gold shirts versus blue shirts. Right. Even though you don't ever see any of the other ones. Right. But, but and, the gold. and I like that. Is that what you're about to say or no? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was gonna say I, I liked it and didn't like it. Well, I like the fact that at the beginning, when you're first seeing Iosha, uh, everybody's in gold. Uh, right. uh, the, the the ladies are in their gold Starfleet miniskirts, and the guys are all in their their t-shirt things. And it's like, what's going on? I mean, I mean, they saw more than just one colored. Uh, uniform in the original series, right? Um, so I was trying to think of what, what's the explanation in my head why everybody's got gold on. And then when they say it, it's like, oh, that kind of makes sense. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'll buy that for a nickel. Right. I think it's a dollar. You buy that for a dollar. I'm cheap. But... <laughs> Anyways... Yeah, no, now that you mentioned that, uh, I mean, I, I guess I liked it, but I don't know. I just, I, I, I'm really having a hard time to believe that they totally recreated their whole planet so that oh. even the, you know, the skyline looks like, you know, the matte paintings from the original series. And how would they have any references of that? I, how would they know what a 23rd century building looks like? I completely agree. I completely agree. They haven't got a book. They don't have a book. Yeah. Right. And what I what I really was thinking the whole time I was reading this is um, back when Deep Space Nine was going to do the Trials and Tribulations episode, mm -hmm. uh, the other option they were going to do was an episode where they revisited Sigma Iota Three hmm. and found out that you know something like this happened. So I don't know if the writers of the comic book knew that and they kind of ran with with their own idea. Um, you know that this is what Deep Space Nine was going to do at one point, right? Or if it, it really was completely independent that that they both just come up with the same idea. Yeah, but it is interesting that uh, that in both scenarios they were planning on. And I mean, obviously, the original series left left that open with with McCoy leaving the, the communicator there. Right, and, and was that purposeful? I mean, were they thinking of a sequel, the sequel, a sequel possibility, that proactively? Yeah, yeah. I've, a lot of lot of the original series was kind of open ended, right? Where yeah, you could always go back and revisit it. Sure. The only one they actually did was Khan. Khan. Yeah. 
So, anyways, I, I I liked that, and and I always liked this idea of you know that a culture, you know, this is the main reason for the Prime Directive because because of that one episode, which I I always thought was a cool idea. Yeah. It's a bit extreme. Even though I think, I think you said you didn't really care for that episode, though. Oh, a piece of the action? Yeah. Uh, no, I I was fine with the episode. I, oh. Personally, I always thought the um, the parallel development episodes, like when they were back in Roman times, or well, no, Roman, the Roman Empire never fell. Uh, you know those kind of things. I I thought all those were ridiculous. <laughs> but right. at least this one, this one's just, uh, it isn't parallel development. It's uh, prime directive uh, style um, contamination of an incredibly uh, imitative society. Uh, almost beyond belief. No, beyond belief. No, it is beyond belief. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's it's fine. It, it, it gives it an interesting... Uh, I thought there were I thought there were things in the original series that were uh, funny, uh, interesting. You know, if you just go with the suspended disbelief and go with the idea that uh, these aliens, you know, off of one book copied an entire society, based an entire society. Once you get past that, I thought there were some funny things. I, I it was a, it was a light episode mostly. Right. Except for all the killing, because everybody's walking around with Tommy guns. Well, yeah, but in Star Trek, it's uh, and back in that time period, people were dying all the time, but you never see blood or anything, so it was all it's all in good fun. Hey, that guy just died. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the way things were, and to some degree still are. It's still but, are. But I did I did like the Scotty asking to look up what a heater is. I like the uh, the Fizbin game. Um, they're multi, you know Kirk trying to figure out how to drive a manual shift car and uh, I thought that was good. Yeah, I was going to mention the Fizzbin game. So is that supposed to be a 24th century game or is that a an old game? Kirk made it up. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, he made the whole thing was, up. I didn't know if he made it up or if it was just a game that, that he knew. So uh, it, Well, it, yeah, I took it that he made the whole thing up. Okay. Except on Tuesday, when it, it, you know, it's like, come on, Tuesday? Anyway. Oh, I didn't remember the, the specifics, because I meant to rewatch that episode, but I only, only watched the first half. Yeah. I hadn't got that far yet. I mean, when he began, just, I mean, besides the name Fizbin, it's like, okay, it sounds kind of whacked. Uh, <laughs> there were aspects of it that were comically over the top, so you knew at least parts of it were made up. But I, you know, who knows, maybe the, the core of it was... A real game in that right. the twenty third century maybe I don't know yeah the the only reason I was going to mention the game was because you know there was a card game in the last issue and there was a card game in this issue and I was like it would have been cool right. if they were both the same same card game oh the same card game uh, oh yeah right but I guess if Fizbin was really just hundred percent made up by Kirk which I didn't remember that part uh, then that makes sense why they wouldn't uh, be the same right uh, it was it was interesting that they brought back Fizbin. And even had the card game going on while the card and company tried to get out, like in the Taz episode, which they did mention in this issue. But uh, they hearkened back to many things from the original episode, didn't they? Yeah, so they like borrowed everything from the original show. <laughs> well, just about. They, they brought a lot of stuff from the original episode into here, maybe too much. 
Yeah, so which is good. I mean, obviously, it's supposed to be a uh, almost the trouble with Tribbles type uh, episode where you know having the next generation cast with a uh, original series situation, kind of the right. way the trials and tribulations was. So right. Yep. I guess it would make sense that they would want to hit all the same beats and even have some of the same gags. And they they do hit many of them. Yep. So barefoot on the Enterprise, that that's new. Oh, exactly. What the hell? Okay. First off, the first thing we see is Data floating in space, right? He's away from the hull. How did he get back to the hull? He doesn't have a jetpack. Um, I don't think he's got a uh, cricket ball in his pocket to throw. That's a Doctor Who reference. It completely. Peter Davidson, yes. So. If you're, you know, I've watched Gravity enough to know, if you're, if you're floating in space, you can't just swim. You can't do the backstroke to get back to the ship. I mean, how did he get back to the hull? You want me to tell you my theory? Yes, but let me mention one more thing. Um, okay. Isn't the ship in orbit around the planet? Yes, it is. And when you're in orbit around a planet, you're moving. You're moving. Very quickly, by the way. And when Data was beamed outside of the ship, he was not necessarily going at the same velocity as the ship. Uh, I mean, who knows? Maybe that's a maybe that's a, the way transporters work. But I kind of doubt it. So probably what what should have happened is the ship could should have went woo way past Data, and he would be uh, sitting there floating, going, "Uh, I thought this would help." Anyway. That's Maybe they weren't in uh, in geosynchronous orbit. They were just well, stationary. You don't, you don't have to be in geosync. You can just stay there and let the 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 planet spin underneath you. Okay. You don't have to be moving. But, but, okay, but then the gravity would pull you down. So no, part of the reason anti gravity warp drive. <laughs> you can do whatever you want to. Okay, part of the Physics reason you doesn't apply here, kid. <laughs> You're talking crazy. <laughs> Okay, I'll stop. Anyways. So I don't know how he got back to the hull. And then, yes, you're right. Go ahead. Talk about the barefoot. No, I want to talk about how he got back to the ship. Oh, okay, go. And, you tell me. This, this, this is PG-13 here. <laughs> okay. I think he peed. He's a robot. I've seen him eat. Has to go somewhere. And he's fully functional. So, right. In other so ways... He had a bladder that could jet back. He used it as a little jet pack, got back to the ship. I, I would think farting would be more possible, probable, but okay. <laughs> Peeing. And that's why, that's why, you know, Sonny gave him such a, a ridiculous long amount of time before he was going to start killing anybody else. Because, you know, once, once he relieved his bladder, it still took him, you know, several hours to make his way back to the ship. Just ah, floating there. That's it. That's it. So that's why Sonny gave him eight hours to think about it. Okay. Which was a ridiculous amount of time. Yes, I agree. Okay, so Spider-Man Data. Once he does get back to the ship, he's walking on the hull without gravity boots. And right. how is he doing it? Don't know. With his spidey powers, because his shoes are off, and he's barefoot walking on the hull. Yeah, I didn't... I didn't... Didn't understand what was going on there because I've never heard him say that he had magnetic feet. <laughs> and even if he had magnetic feet, 
magnetism works through shoes. So, again. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, because those are just leather shoes, right? So Yeah, yeah just leather shoes. I mean, right. I assume. I mean, he's in costume. I assume it's leather shoes, but. Yeah, good point, good point. It's not lead. So, I don't get that. But uh, as far as physics go, I do like that they actually uh, reference that uh, sound waves would not be traveling in space. So that just because you can use the communicator, Data wouldn't hear anything. But he's able to feel the vibrations from the speaker. Right. And he wouldn't be able to speak because there's no air for the sound wave to travel in. So, okay, so the vibe – so I I could see – I could see the vibration happening. Um, in the sound making element within the communicator so data was able to feel the vibration and turn that feeling into something he could understand exactly because he's he's super data he's super data who can travel in space and walk on hulls okay that's fine yeah traveling in space and the I'll even buy the communicator thing even though I don't I don't think that he would have ever practiced this function, that, right. you know, like you said, translating the vibrations into words. But right, okay, right. I'll even buy that one. But I don't buy the magnetic feet. Yeah. Well, okay, just just accept half of it. So, the amazing data does half of the things he's amazingly doing. When he gets back to the ship, what does he do, or what doesn't he do? He doesn't flood the ship. Right away with uh, uh, anesthetic, uh, anesthetic or sleep gas. Right. But yeah, they no, do it said later. He concocts this whole this whole thing. Exactly. It's like, oh, we have to make it more interesting and have the holodeck thing. Aren't we clever? It's like, just gas the thing. Your data. You can gas the whole ship if you want to. It doesn't matter. Anyway. Right. Well, to you. Uh, maybe my synopsis was a little wrong. Uh, I think. Riker's the one that actually does the flooding, but why couldn't? No, no, he does. I mean, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, they did it later. Right. Yeah, so after they took the bridge, or actually they took control of the ship, that's when they No, they took control of the holodeck. Well, okay, so, well, hold on. Did they ever, did they really truly ever give control of the ship over to to the Admiral? I guess they did. I don't think they I don't think they did. I think I okay. did not understand any of that because it was all holodeck. The the person that he gives control to is a holodeck guy. That lieutenant. Tip-up. Well, okay. Well, how how about this? Um, you don't need to be on the bridge to transfer control. I think that was absolute nope. BS. But he's Agreed. in a holodeck. They do talk to the computer. Um, wouldn't the computer be listening in the holodeck unless they turned it off? But how? I don't know. Well, it didn't. It didn't deactivate the self-destruct when he pretended like he was deactivating it. Oh, because I mean, they make a comment he? that you know the the self-destruct was never deactivated, and right, they that, that's true at the very end. So, yep. No, I'm with you. Why did he not gas him as soon as he got on board? As soon as and he even got if it, it, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, Data should have just gassed the ship. But whatever. We just needed another cameo by the Shat in the last issue. <laughs> well, not only that. They had filler all over the place. What was that deal with that uh, super hot miniskirt chick visiting Picard in the brig? Uh, I, I left her out of the synopsis, but yeah, what was up with that? Yeah, okay, so there was a scene 
where a super hot miniskirt chick with a little mole on her face um, visits Picard in the brig. And she's all like, oh, you know, she's like, I always wanted to meet Kirk, you know. And then, like, she's trying to get something out of Picard, maybe. Right. But then at the end, not. And it's like, what the hell is this doing here? I mean, it's a good excuse to show the uh, super hot miniskirt check. But it's like, why is this here? Filler? It, it was filler. It was just to show that, you know, Kirk can, you know, or that <laughs> Picard, Picard can get the ladies, too. Not just a Kirk thing. Oh, but yeah, but was it? I don't know. I, the whole thing seemed like it was a manipulative thing. Like she was trying to get something. Right. Yeah. No. So I, I kept waiting I, I, for something else to happen. Well, I, I was waiting for her to do something where she was offering Picard, uh, like if I help you, then I get control of Australia or something. You know, something or the equivalent <laughs> of Australia. Um, sure. I was expecting her to. She was trying doing some kind of power play thing, but no. So nope. so did they did they kiss or something in the end? Did they uh, do more? Who knows? Like they were going know. to. It's implied maybe they did more. Hmm. Interesting. And speaking of super hot miniskirt chick, it's like Troy. Oh my gosh! So um, the penciler has Troy in all of these. So she's in a in a skin tight uh, maroon colored red colored dress, looking hot. And they draw her in multiple places in this comic in very uh, sexy poses. Yeah, she has her her back arched quite a bit in this one. Exactly. Um, And it's like, that's fine. I enjoy it. But it's like, geez, you guys are blatant. You guys are obvious. You're playing the the sexy card here quite a bit. Right. And and for whatever reason, Troy, or not Troy, but uh, Crusher's blonde. Right, yeah. Throughout this whole issue. Yeah. So was that part of her character, that she was going to dye her hair blonde for this issue? I I think for the this colors mission? is just whacked. Yeah. And, and by the but way... It threw Cr- me uh, off at first. I was like, well, who's the blonde? Yeah. Dr. Crusher is in some pretty good scenes, too. But Troy... Oh, my God. There, there's this one towards the end. Uh, there's a spot where the ship's moving around a little bit. And she's like plastered against the wall, but her her back is still arched, and her her voluminous breasts are lunging forward. It's like this is so blatant. Anyway, no, I agree. Uh, I agree, hundred yeah. percent. And then I thought, uh, you know, just talking about people maybe not quite looking like the actors, um, Riker at times, his hair and his beard looked longer than normal. So I was like. He kind of looks like, you know, maybe Grizzly Adams or something more than, <laughs> than Jonathan Frakes. Uh-huh. Did, did you notice that at all, or were you too busy with, with the ladies? Uh, I didn't really notice it that much. Although his hair was a little shaggier than normal, I'll agree with that. His hair. Uh, head hair. Right, right. I think. Uh, Jordy looked a little uh, different to me. Uh, I was really... Again, so this was, uh, he has his uh, post first contact or first contact forward eyes. Right. So, um, so that was a little, I mean, I, I knew the time period and why, but it, seeing those blue eyes 
uh, without zooming in and showing that it can do stuff. That threw me off a little bit. Yeah, I thought Jordy was just really underused in this issue. Oh, big I time. mean, he doesn't even come up with any of the plan. It's all Riker and Data off screen, you know, and yeah. and, and oftentimes Jordy acts like, oh, we're not going to be able to do anything. Or, I'm getting seasick. <laughs> yeah, and by I was the way, really did, did you yeah, did you notice on that page in that particular panel where Troy is uh, like kneeling on the ground and Jordy's like in the back of the frame and he says, "I'm getting seasick." He doesn't look like Jordy at all. I mean, I guess the hair is right, but the face does not look right. No, and it almost looks like he's got a little pencil thin mustache, which he doesn't or shouldn't. Uh, let me zoom in on that. I mean, I it's agree like, that he doesn't look Who is that right. guy? Yeah, no. Who? He doesn't look at all at like LeVar Burton. No. But it's a background shot, so he's you know right. just hanging out in the background. He looks a little too little too tall and skinny. Yeah, too. with a higher, higher forehead than LeVar has. Yeah. Yeah, well, whatever. Okay. So my, my last comment is, uh, I guess it's Lieutenant Tebow. Oh, right. It is... Uh, his dialogue remind you of anything? Uh, well, I a little, he's, a little he's, gangsterish, but well, I think he is uh, imitating the great Shat <laughs> because okay. in, in the word balloons they purposely only put like one or two words, and then the next word balloon, and then the next word balloon. So it'd be like attitude and defiance. You'll be fun to break. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they had to have done that on purpose. Oh, did they? <laughs> I Maybe. might need a first officer. Uh, maybe. But I doubt we'll have much use for you. You know, come on. <laughs> Stereotypical Shatner, even though he doesn't necessarily always talk like that. Right. It doesn't appear to have anything to do with navigation, the engines, or weapon systems, or communications. But he's the it's only one they do that like. He's the yeah. only one they do that to. Yeah, and he and he is blonde. Uh, I guess he looks a little like like Shatner, a little, very little. But yeah, maybe I didn't pick up on that. But you oh. could be quite right. Huh. And then at the end, when when he's dying, Sonny's dying on yeah. the holodeck. Did the background really change to the the? The Chicago setting, or was that just Sonny dying hallucinations? And he's suddenly wearing a hat that he wasn't yep. wearing before, and he takes it off and dies. And I had no idea what was what was real and what was not at that exactly. point. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that was like a, like three quarters of a page, uh, or actually seventy five percent of a page. So there's four uh, horizontal. Uh, panels and the first one is in in the hollow deck or in in the ship looking, and the next one is back at the planet. I think I think it was him dying. It was him dying, but but no no. no. I, How I much think of it was, it was a real holodeck? As opposed to well, I'm thinking none. Okay. I mean, even unless, even Shatner it, showing up, you think was a, a hallucination? No, no. They purposely said they had Shatner there for real. Okay, didn't they? That yeah, was part of the programming. So right. I I don't think they bothered going as far in the programming as to 
bring him back into uh, you know the Chicago scene from the original Taz episode. I don't think they did, but who knows? I think that was him before he died. He was back to being a kid again. And was that the first time that Sonny had been on the on the bridge? Because I thought he had been there oh, before. He was, there. <clears throat> he was not in, in the original series? No, no, the no. Uh, in, in this ep- In this issue. When when he showed up on the bri- on the Enterprise, did he go straight to the brig, or did he? You know, he, I know that showed him do a tour. Did he ever go to the bridge? I, yeah, he's on the bridge. I don't know. But that then that's my he point. He went to the bridge. It was yeah. the Enterprise D bridge or Enterprise E bridge. But yeah. But when then they're when on they the holodeck again, bridge, it right? looks more like the like a like it looks more like the bridge from the original series. Oh, I didn't get that. Although I will say that uh, the the turbo lift door is red. Was it ever red in Next Gen? It, under the bridge, it's red. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that that seems like more of a uh, Taz thing to right. me. Uh, yeah. I agree. Yeah, I don't know, but I, I thought that was kind of clever. They took the shortcut through the holiday. Well, which apparently took them to the holodeck, right? Right. Well, you can see on the it's labeled deck five. Well, it could be holodeck. It could be any deck three. So never mind. I I would just assume it was holodeck three, but it that doesn't necessarily mean that it was holodeck. Yeah. Anyways, there you go. It's a good issue. It's a good visit back to Iosha and the whole Iosian people. So it was good. Is it Iosha or Iota? I think it's Iosha. Oh, oops. Because Iota, I don't, I don't think it's Iota. Which uh, I thought was funny. Yeah, maybe it is. I, mean, I don't know. It's I think if we went, if we went back and watched the episode, especially the captain's log, in the original mm-hmm. piece of the action episode, we'd probably find out that way to right. see how Kirk is pronouncing it. Right. And so um, the only thing I thought was funny is how many times they had somebody say a piece of the action throughout the issue. <laughs> It might be on. Yeah, they everything. said that a lot. <laughs> Actually, if you go back, I think you're right. <laughs> and on the uh, the the recap page previously on Star Trek um, Unlimited, I like yeah. how they have a shot of Shatner doing the Fonzie impression. If you go back and look, um, I am going back. Got and his look. thumbs up. Hey, hey Alex. So that was the little levity thing at the end. Hey, we just had a big uh, episode where we almost got killed, but hey, we're here now. Hey, yeah, a little levity on the bridge, right? He, before you know it, they w- may want to cut into a piece of our action. Yeah. Oh, was that the final joke? I think it was. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think the joke was. Uh, they were they were razzing uh, McCoy, and they say if they're able to become advanced enough, then Kirk makes a joke. I think uh, if it goes too far, they may want a piece of my action or something. I think that's what he said. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was pretty cool that they they tied the kid in, but then he yeah. was yeah. So the kid that was with Kirk and Spock 
on the bumper of the uh, of the old car. Uh, and what did he use the kid for again? I don't even remember. But he promised the kid a piece of he promised. Oh, that's right, a distraction. So he promised the kid a piece of the action. And now he was coming to get it again, as a, as an old guy. So that was kind of cool. And then at the end, when uh, or in the episode when the admiral was saying, "I don't just want a piece of the action. I want all the action." I thought that was kind of cool. With a whole oh, fleet of sovereign class starships. Yeah, which was patently ridiculous. Jesus, come on, come on, jeepers. Yes, just got to go with it. But yeah, you're, you guys are going to figure out how to be, build ships, and you're going to be able to build that many. You know, there are probably limits to your resources, but whatever. Well, they were able to rebuild their whole planet to look like a 23rd century matte painting, so they can do anything. <laughs> And that's the other thing. Okay, so he was talking about going back to Earth. I mean, right. that's the first he wanted to do. I'm going to Earth. And it's like, wait a minute. And I think Picard even mentions it. You got one ship. What are you going to do? You know, I, I, did they explain that fully? Nope. No, he just said, yes, and then I'm going to have more ships, and I'm going to have all the pieces. But he never he, explains what exactly he was going to do. Except, what are you going to yeah, you're, you're I mean, do? He, take... he acknowledges that he's going to need more time to make more ships, but he never says... I'm still not going to go there first. Yeah, and that uh, he says, "Oh, I'm you know I'm old," and he knows he's close to you know going to going to die in the not too distant future. Obviously, he's not going to have time to have his fleet built. I mean, come on. Anyway, maybe he just wanted to die confusing. in a blaze of glory. I don't know. I I I guess. Anyway, so decent issue. That was it. You like it better? Okay. I liked it better than the first one, but. I like them both. Yeah, but they're and they also had had their flaws, of course. But right, we were entertained, and that's what matters. Yes, as the I, as as the listening audience, I'm sure was entertained. Well, they're probably like tapping their watches. Let's go, guys. Let's wrap it up. All right. So next issue or next episode, excuse me, we are going to finish off Starfleet Academy, sixteen through eighteen. And though, but that's still not the last. Those are not the last three, are they, or are they? Uh, yeah, the last three Starfleet Academy. They are the last three. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. Right, and then after that, we have a couple of uh, one shots that um, that uh, Marvel did. So we have uh, Operation Assimilation, hmm. which was a, a Borg one, and then there's a Riker special, and then there is the great Star Trek crossover issues. Uh, I'm sorry, the Star Trek X-Men crossover <laughs> issues. <laughs> I'm looking forward to how that works. Right, yeah. So they crossed over three those. times. They, there's three crossovers, but we'll only really be covering two since one of them was a novel, and I've never been able to finish it. I've gotten about halfway through it twice, and for whatever reason, I, I lose interest. So, uh, uh, And, of course, this is Taz. Crossover. One's Taz, and then the next generation. Okay, so there's, I'm looking. For, I'm looking forward to how uh, Xavier and Picard look exactly the same. I'm looking forward to that. It'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so so they must be drawing Xavier, Charles Xavier uh, in his pre Patrick Stewart mode. Well, he already he already looked like Patrick Stewart well before the X Men. Well, started. come on. 
Well, he looks like Lex Luthor, too, but let's not get ridiculous. Lex Luthor always has a little bit more meat on him than, than Patrick Stewart does. Lex Luthor. Mr. Luthor. Okay. All right. Looking forward so, to yes. all of it. Yes, it's going to be good. It's a good final three weeks of Marvel, and then we'll move on to Wildstorm. Okay. But cool. I think we might need to do a gold key one of these days. Oh. Ah, in the thespian mode? Of course. Is there another way to do it? <sighs> it does make it a little more interesting, but at least for us. Not so sure how the uh, audience likes it. Well, actually, we had a few comments that all, were encouraging. All the feedback was pretty positive on it. Yeah. Well, everybody that didn't like it probably didn't feedback, but... They probably didn't finish listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cool. All right. So let's uh, close it up and be back next week. Sounds good. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on the review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name, stcomic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.